0: Inauguration Day, the seating of the new Congress, the swearing-in of a new governor or justice, during those events, or or those like them, events like that, do you stop and thank God for the peaceful transfer of power? It, It is a remarkable thing that takes place in this country, one that we likely take for granted, but shouldn't, It's astounding that year after year, the reins of power are transferred back and forth without violence or bloodshed. In many countries around the world, the transfer of power is not so peaceful. Indeed, the history of the world has often been marked by uneasy and violent power grabs. In some respects, such tensions over the transfer of power are not surprising. Being terrified of the transfer of power is not surprising depending on the nature and the extent of the office's powers the one who occupies that office can do enormous good or enormous harm the transfer of power then can can generate feelings of fear or faith who will govern who will rule who will reign these are all consequential questions In fact, they are the questions of the text that we're looking at together this morning. Who will reign? 1 Kings chapters 1 and 2 chronicle the uneasy transfer of power from King David to the next king of Israel. The situation is volatile and violent and still a throne is established. And as we consider this text, we are confronted with the same question the text raises. Who will reign? We're confronted with that question in our own lives. Who will rule and reign in our lives? Will we we be upstart pretenders to the throne of Jesus? Or will we be glad and willing subjects who receive and recognize His generous, gentle and gracious rule in our lives? Will we transfer all authority to Jesus or will we seek to claim it for ourselves? Keep those questions in the forefront of your mind as we study 1 Kings chapters 1 and 2. If you haven't done so already, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find uh, the passage beginning, I believe, on page 279. And while you're turning there, uh, please allow me to introduce us to the books of First and Second Kings as a whole. Um, there should be an insert, I think, there in your bulletin that provides a timeline of Israel's history on one side, as well as a brief overview that I'm going to walk through of the books of first and Second Kings. We're going to be studying these books together over the next uh, several months, Lord willing. In the, in the Hebrew Bible, the, the books of First and Second Kings were initially one work known as the Book of Kings. They continue the chronicle that began in First and 2 Samuel with the establishment of the monarchy in Israel. Now remember, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promised David that a son from his line would be the promised Messiah and reign on his throne forever. The book of Kings shifts our focus from David to his sons. All the while asking us the question, leading us to ask, is this, is this new king, is he... Is he the promised son, the promised one? And as the book progresses, we move from David to Solomon and from Solomon to the decline and the eventual downfall of Israel as a monarchy. Kings may be described as a descent. In Kings, we experience a descent from the the golden age under Solomon to Israel's descent into the grueling age of the exile. As a whole, the book of Kings reveals that God's judgment on Israel was righteous. He was right to judge his people. Just as Adam and Eve disobeyed God's commands and were exiled from the Garden of Eden, so Israel and her kings disobeyed God's commands and were likewise exiled from the promised land of Canaan. The book of Kings opens with David alive, but nearing his death. And it ends in 2 Kings chapter 25 with Israel's king, Jehoiachin, being released from prison in exile. Because of Jehoiachin's release, uh, because it took place roughly halfway through uh, the exile around 561 BC, that's the earliest possible date for the book. Uh, this means that the book of Kings covers over 400 years in a short span. Uh, we'll need to bear this in mind as we read the work. Uh, At times, the author, he's going to fast-forward us through a large uh, section of of history. And at other times, he'll kind of slow us down, put it in slow motion for us. And when he slows the the passage of time down kind of to a crawl, there's a reason for it. And we need to listen especially carefully to what the author is saying. Speaking of the author, who wrote Kings? Well, some have proposed Jeremiah was the author of Kings, but, but ultimately we don't know. He, he doesn't actually reveal himself. Uh, because the author of Kings is covering such a large period of time, he clearly uses uh, the works of previous historians. He explicitly draws upon at least three written sources, and the author almost certainly drew on other sources as well. All of this tells us that our author, the author of Kings, was a God-honoring theological historian. In the main... The book of Kings is is roughly chronological, and it's structured in a one-to-one pattern. It it follows the development of the one kingdom of Israel under Solomon, and then it divides into two kingdoms. Uh, In that section, it's kind of bouncing back and forth between the rulers of the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, until all that's left is just the one southern kingdom of Judah. The, The message of the book of Kings is that Despite Israel's sin, God's king will come. So, if you want a sentence that communicates the idea of these two books together, I I think that's it. That despite Israel's sin, God's king will come. And though the book describes a descent from the golden era of Solomon's reign into the grueling era of the exile, though the prophets of God, Elijah and Elisha, expose Israel's disobedience to the law of God, The book still concludes with a king and a son of David being released from prison. This gives us hope that God will yet fulfill his promise to David to send a son, a son from his line, to sit on his throne. Though all seemed hopeless in the exile, and though God was fully justified in sending his people into exile, he has still not forsaken his promises to send a Messiah to his people. The first two chapters... Of First uh, Kings are concerned with the question who will reign, as David, as King David, ages and begins to fade. Two sons of David come into view, and we're left to wonder who's going to reign. Will the presumptuous son reign, or will the promised son reign? Who will follow David on his throne? This is an important question. For God has promised David in 2 Samuel seven, as I've mentioned. Verses 12 and 13, that he would raise up a son after him and establish his kingdom. There's the melody line of 1st and 2nd Kings. Who establishes the kingdom? God or man? We're going to study 1st and 2nd Kings under three headings. The passing king, the presumptuous king, and the promised king. Let's begin with our first point, the passing king. And as we do, take a look at the first four verses of 1 Kings, beginning there in verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1. Now, King David was old and advanced in years, and although they covered him with clothes, he could not get warm. Therefore his servants said to him, let a young woman be sought for my lord the king, and let her wait on the king and be in his service. Let her lie in your arms that my lord the king may be warm." So they sought for a beautiful young woman throughout all the territory of Israel and found Abishag the Shumanite and brought her to the king. The young woman was very beautiful and she was of service to the king and attended him. But the king knew her not. The purpose of these verses is to underscore the need for a succession plan in Israel. David is fading away. He will soon die. Israel needs a new king and fast. Frankly, I suspect that all of us feel pretty icky about these verses. A beautiful young woman, woman, by which the author almost certainly means a virgin, is brought to attend to David's needs, to lie with him and to keep him warm. That activity requires a kind of closeness that is not appropriate for a man and women who are not married. The author of Kings, he knows what we're tempted to think in this situation. He knows how this looks. A beautiful young virgin in the presence of a man who has been known for looking on beautiful young women and taking them as his own is suspect. While verse 4 clarifies that David did not know, which is to say that he was not intimate with Abishag the Shumanite, the author has communicated this through a studied ambiguity. He doesn't clarify for us whether David was not intimate with her because he was too old or because he was righteous. The mere fact that the author does not clarify that David did not know her because he was righteous, it speaks volumes. The author has left the situation hazy. Just as the situation of who will succeed David on the throne is hazy. Make no mistake, a woman made in the image of God is sinfully mistreated here. Maybe it wasn't David's plan, but he didn't refuse when he should have. We may be tempted to look down on David, but if we're honest with ourselves, We too have been guilty of wanting and taking that which does not belong to us. Sadly, we, in large and in small ways, have used others for our own personal gain or pleasure. We must confess that this is sin, and we must repent of it, turning away from it, and treating those made in God's image with dignity and care and love. David should have protected this young woman. This scene and the sin of our own hearts makes us long for a king who will protect us. We long for a king who will not sin against his people. And this makes us long for King Jesus. Go and read every encounter between Jesus and women that you can find in the Gospels, and you will find a king who loves and serves and protects and defers and esteems women. Jesus is the model of how every man ought to treat every woman. This is a concerning scene. It is concerning for purity and righteousness are not as crisp and clear as we would like. Still, this is a concerning scene at another level. What are we to make of a book that opens with a man on his deathbed? On the one hand, that may not bode well for the remainder of the work. It is a dark scene. What kind of king will sit on David's throne? This could be a a dark cloud hovering over the whole work. On the other hand, this scene, it may just give us hope that we're leaving all of David's sorry sins behind. What kind of king will reign on David's throne? Will there be a king more righteous than him? Well, the first kind of king we meet after David is Adonijah, and he is a presumptuous king. This is the second point that we want to consider together this morning, the presumptuous king. And as we begin to consider this, read 1 Kings chapter 1, begin there in verse 5, we'll read verses 5 to 10. Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and fifty men to run before him. His father had never at any time displeased him by asking, Why have you done thus and so? He was also a very handsome man, and he was born next after Absalom. He conferred with Joab the son of Zeruiah, and with Abiathar the priest. And they followed Adonijah and helped him. But Zadok the priest and Benaniah the son of Jehoiada and Nathan the prophet and Shimai and Rei and David's mighty men were not with Adonijah. Adonijah sacrificed sheep, oxen, and fattened cattle by the serpent's stone, which is beside Enrogel. And, and he invited all his brothers, the king's sons, and all the royal officials of Judah, but he did not invite Nathan the prophet or Benaniah, or the mighty men, or Solomon, his brother. Here we meet the presumptuous king, Adonijah. The author of Kings lets us know what we should think of Adonijah through a number of clues. For example, there in verse 5 we're told that he exalted himself. And of course, he is in the midst of doing so while his father is on his deathbed. What a loving picture of a considerate and caring son. This self-exaltation is also completely contradictory to the way that David came to the throne. From 1st and 2nd Samuel, you'll recall that David's path to the throne was long and humiliating, and he refused to exalt himself. He refused to kill Saul and exalt himself. Instead, he patiently waited for the Lord to exalt him. He patiently waited for the Lord to bring him to the throne as he promised. The author also tells us that Adonijah is following in the way of his older brother Absalom. Absalom was the one who attempted a coup against his father David for which he lost his life. It's not too difficult to come to the conclusion that Adonijah is doing the very same thing that Absalom did. After all, the the author tells us that Adonijah is handsome we know that's true about Solomon from 2nd Samuel chapter 14 verse 25 and then in verse 6 we're told that Adonijah made 50 men to run before him which is the very thing that Absalom did in 2nd Samuel chapter 15 verse 1 in verse 9 we're told that this self exaltation is taking at the ominous locations taking place at the ominous location of the serpent's stone now Any reasonable human being should have an aversion to snakes. But but especially when we come to Scripture, serpents are generally a warning sign to us. Adonijah is seeking to exalt himself to his father's throne, just as Adam, in response to a serpent's suggestion, sought to exalt himself to God's throne in Genesis chapter 3. In some respects, Adonijah should not be faulted for seizing the throne. After all, he's the the eldest son of David. Absalom's now dead, and so he's the eldest one that remains. And the the protocol of succession in the ancient Near Eastern world was that the eldest son would succeed his father on the throne. Add to this the fact that David never refused or challenged Adonijah. That's what verse 6 indicates. Look, Look at that verse again. It's an astounding verse. His father had never at any time displeased him by asking, Why have you done thus and so? David was an absentee father. He never taught his son that sometimes love says no. Brothers in Christ, we who are fathers, let us learn from David's failure. David never checked his son. He never questioned Adonijah's Adonijah's wisdom. And so Adonijah became a self-exalting, self-important scoundrel. The fact that the author describes David's lack of fathering through a question... Notice how he did that? Through a question. I think that's striking, isn't it? Good parenting is not done just through declaration of law and rules. Though that's certainly involved. Good parenting is done through the inculcating of wisdom. Wisdom calls for us to ask questions. Wisdom invites us to consider the end at the beginning. Mom and Dad, because I said isn't always enough we need to teach our children how to think wisely we need to ask questions to to help our children think things through we need to ask the very question we have here why did you do that did you think that that was a a good idea do you think that tended toward your good and the good of others do you do you think god was glorified in that In our parenting, we need to have categories of law and wisdom. Children, youth, young adults. If you have parents who tell you no, and parents who ask you questions about your actions because they're concerned about whether or not you're being wise, you may very well have parents who love you. In fact, I'm pretty certain of it. Parents who love you, who want your safety, your security and your satisfaction in Jesus. They want your flourishing, your fruitfulness. Young people, David's failure to question and correct his son revealed his lack of love for him. So if your parents are questioning you and telling you no, they are actually revealing their abundant love for you. They want your best and your good. When your parents are pleading with you to choose a different path, to go the way of wisdom instead of foolishness, you should believe that they are doing it because they love you. You see, God tells His people no all the time because He loves us. And your fathers and your mothers tell you no because they love you. They tell you no because they know how your unchecked desires can lead you astray and leads to your harm. They are trying to train you in the way of righteousness so that you will flourish in God's world. If your mom and dad speak into your life, thank God for His generosity to you. He's being so kind to you. He has given you parents who delight in you and want to see you delight in Him. One other clue in the text which signals a coup and a a stealing of the throne from David is... Those who attend Adonijah's feast and those who do not. Did you notice that in the text? Joab and Abiathar were there along with his brothers, the king's sons, and all the royal officials of Judah. But twice, the author tells us that he did not invite Nathan the prophet. Or Benaniah, who is the leader of God's, uh, David's mighty men. Kind of his, his bodyguard. Um, oh yeah. And he did not invite Solomon. You see that there in verse 10. This is a problem. For while the the human pattern of thinking would seek to establish Adonijah as king according to the ancient Near Eastern tradition, we've already been told in 2 Samuel 12, verse 24, that Yahweh, that God, loved Solomon. Given that Adonijah has been described in the likeness of Absalom and Solomon has been disclosed as the one God loves, the coup is clear. This self-enthronement feast will come to an end by the end of the day. But in order for that to happen, some godly saints need to intervene. We'll we'll see that in just a moment. But right now, we need to pause and reflect upon our own hearts and our tendency to exalt ourselves like Adonijah. Pride is an ugly thing. In our pride, we demand that others serve us, go after us, and listen to us. In the the words of William Gurnall, he once said, Pride loves to climb up, not as Zacchaeus to see Christ, but to be seen. When when our place or preferences are challenged, our pride rears its ugly head. How do we know? How do we know that we struggle with pride? Well, the first sign is that we're human. We all struggle with pride. But, But there are symptoms beyond that. It's seen in our entitlement, in our impatience, in our deflection of blame, in our lack of charity and generosity toward others, in our unwillingness to think the best about others, in our seeking of personal pleasure at the expense of others, in our ingratitude, in our inability to say thank you, and especially in our anger. Have you been angry this past week? I have. We've all wrestled with pride. And we're all prideful. What we will find in the book of Kings is that in the words of James chapter 4, verse 6, God opposes the proud. But He gives grace to the humble. God is going to oppose Adonijah in all of his self-exaltation. And we see that as God's prophet, Nathan, Steps into the picture there in verses 11 to 14. Read 1 Kings chapter 1, verses 11 to 14 now. Then Nathan said to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, Have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king, and David our Lord does not know it? Now therefore, let me give you advice, that you may save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. Go in at once to King David. And say to him, Did you not, my lord the king, swear to your servants, saying, Solomon your son shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne? Why then is Adonijah king? Then, while you are still speaking with the king, I also will come in after you and confirm your words. Nathan, godly Nathan, we see here, recognizes the peril, the great peril, the promised king, Solomon. And his mother, Bathsheba, are in. Nathan devises a plan with Bathsheba to secure her safety and to secure Solomon's reign. One after the other, they will enter into David's presence, honor him as king, and ask him if he intends his son Adonijah to reign on the throne. They will alert David to this presumptuous coup that has taken place. At Adonijah's direction. Informing him of all of the players involved. And respectfully. They will remind David. Of his promise to seat Solomon on his throne. This is what happens in verses 15 to 27. We're not going to read those verses. But I want us to skip ahead. And see the outcome of uh, Nathan and Bathsheba's plan. This is where we get. David's conclusion of the matter in verses 28 to 37. Take a look there at verse 28. We'll read to verse 37. Then King David answered. So all this has happened, right? Uh, Nathan and Bathsheba have come in. They've given their plan. They've shared this with David. This is what happens. Then King David answered, Call Bathsheba to me. So she came into the king's presence and stood before the king. And the king swore, saying, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my soul out of every adversity, as I swore to you, By the Lord, the God of Israel, saying, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place. Even so will I do this day. Then Bathsheba bowed with her face to the ground and paid homage to the king and said, May my lord, King David, live forever. King David said, Call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaniah the son of Jehoiada. So they came before the king, and the king said to them, Take with you the servants of your Lord and have Solomon ride on my own mule and bring him down to Gihon. And let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet there anoint him king over Israel. Then blow the trumpet and say, long live King Solomon. You shall then come up after him and he shall come and sit on my throne. For he shall be king in my place. And I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel, over Judah. And Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, answered the king, Amen. May, may the Lord, the God of my Lord the king, say so. And as the Lord has been with my Lord the king, even so may he be with Solomon and make his throne greater than the throne of my Lord King David. So we see here that David will keep his word. And here we're also beginning to see with greater clarity that sometime in the past, David promised that Solomon would sit on his throne. This is what is recounted in 1 Chronicles chapter 22, verses 6-10. to In this sense, Solomon is the promised son. David's instructions for Solomon's coronation are significant. He gathers those that Adonijah did not welcome at his feast. He gathers those who are actually authorized by the king to enact his succession plan. And he authorizes them to perform the coronation. Solomon is endowed with every necessary indication that he is the rightful heir to David's throne. And note too that in stark contrast to the presumptuous Adonijah's private coronation, Solomon's coronation was public. Righteousness, you see, welcomes the light, while unrighteousness hides in the shadows. The riding on David's mule and the shouts of joy over Solomon ought to remind us of what we read earlier in the service concerning Jesus in Matthew chapter 21 verses 1 to 11, as we think about the the bigger picture of redemptive history, we know that Solomon would build God's temple, but that Jesus is God's temple. As the gospel of John teaches us, Jesus is the temple that would be torn down on the cross, but raised again in 3 days. The people of Israel, they gather around and celebrated Solomon's coronation, But the peoples of the whole earth are now gathering to give Jesus our praise and gratitude for his rule in our lives. In Luke chapter 11, verse 31, Jesus himself said that someone greater than Solomon is here. Indeed, he has come. And in this, we rejoice. Jesus' triumphal entry, you'll recall, sparked a reaction from the crowds. And the uproar from Solomon's coronation in the city sparked a reaction from those who were attending Adonijah's feast. In verses 41 to 48, Adonijah and his guests are informed that Solomon has been crowned king. And then take a look at what happens in verses 49 to 53 and notice how they scurry like cockroaches when the lights come on. Look at verse 49. Then all the guests of Adonijah, so the news has come that Solomon's reigning, then all the guests of Adonijah trembled and rose, and each went his own way. And Adonijah feared Solomon. So he arose and went and took hold of the horns of the altar. Then it was told, Solomon... Behold, Adonijah fears King Solomon, for behold, he has laid hold of the horns of the altar, saying, Let King Solomon swear to me first that he will not put his servant to death with the sword. And Solomon said, If he will show himself a worthy man, not one of his hair shall fall to the earth. But if wickedness is found in him, he shall die. So King Solomon sent, and they brought him down from the altar, and he came and paid homage to King Solomon. And Solomon said to him, Go to your house. I wonder, what do you see in Solomon's reply here? What do you see in Solomon's response to Adonijah, the presumptuous, self-exalting king? Do you see mercy? The, the truth is that Adonijah deserved to be put to death for his rebellion against King David. He has attempted a coup, and yet Solomon, he, he, withhold, he withholds punishment. Do, do you see mercy in Solomon's response, his reply? Do you see generosity? Solomon doesn't send Adonijah to prison. He sends Adonijah home. This man deserves to be locked up in order to prevent this rebellion from being reignited. But instead, Solomon generously returns Adonijah to his house. There is a kind of generosity here that gives Adonijah the the benefit of the doubt, the, the opportunity to choose a new course. To choose loyalty to the duly authorized, appointed, and anointed king. In Solomon's response, do you see faith? Do you see faith in God? Solomon did not exalt himself. He had to have faith in God, faith that, like his father David had, faith like David, that in due time Yahweh would raise him up to sit on the throne. In Solomon's response, do you see the makings of a gracious king? Do you see the bud that will come to full flower in Jesus Christ? Friends, the truth is is that we have all exalted ourselves like Adam and like Adonijah. We have all attempted a coup against the king of creation. We have decided that we will rule our own lives rather than thank God and live under his rule. And just as Adonijah was worthy of just judgment, so we are worthy of God's just judgment. But God has been merciful to us. He has not punished us as our sins deserve. Even more, God has been generous to us. God has not sent us to our own homes as Solomon sent Adonijah to his. No, God has said, Come into my home. Come be my child. Come be a part of my family come be my children, come be my beloved. How has God shown us mercy and generosity and grace? Well, He has shown us mercy and generosity and grace. He has extended this invitation to us in and through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The eternal Son of God, the true heir to David's throne, proved Himself a worthy man by giving up His throne in heaven And taking flesh to himself in the person of Jesus. Jesus, the true heir to David's throne, proved himself a worthy man in the whole of his life by keeping God's law. He was without sin. Jesus, the final heir to David's throne, proved himself to be a worthy man by refusing to exalt himself. And by taking the punishment for unworthy sinners like you and me in his death on the cross. Because of his gracious and obedient humiliation, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. Now, we answer God's generous invitation to to come into his house and receive his mercy by turning from our sin, by turning from our disloyalty to his king, Jesus, and by trusting that his king, Jesus, is our king that He lived for us and died for us and was raised from the grave for the forgiveness of our sins. So friend, if you're here this morning, you're not a believer or follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to hold out to you the invitation that God gives to you. Come into His home and family. Come and receive His mercy and grace and generosity and love. Come, turn from your sins, and come to the Lord Jesus Christ today in faith. And you will be saved. We've met the passing king, David. We've met the presumptuous king, Adonijah. We have even been introduced to the promised king, Solomon. We now need to take a closer look at the beginnings of his rule. This is our third point, the promised king. And as we begin to consider more deeply the promised king, let's read David's instructions to Solomon as he assumes the throne. We're going to begin reading there uh, in 1 Kings Chapter two. Let me, let me read verses 1 to 11 for now. When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon his son, saying, I am about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong and show yourself a man, and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. That the Lord may establish His word that He spoke concerning me, saying, "If your sons, pay, if your sons, pay close attention to their way, to walk before Me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel." Moreover, you shall also know what Joab the son of Zeruiah did to me, how he dealt with the two commanders of the armies of Israel, Abner the son of Ner and Amasa the son of Jether, whom he killed. Avenging in time of peace for blood that had been shed in war, and putting the blood of war on the belt around his waist and on the sandals on his feet. Act therefore according to your wisdom, but do not let his gray head go down to Sheol in peace. But deal loyally with the sons of Bereziliai, the Gileadite, and let them be among those who eat at your table. For with such loyalty, they met me when I fled from Absalom, your brother, and there is also with you Shimei, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite from Beruim, who cursed me with a grievous curse on the day when I went to Manahem. But when he came down to meet me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, saying, "I will not put you to death with the sword." Now, therefore, do not hold him guiltless, for you are a wise man; you will know what you ought to do to him. And you shall bring his gray head down with blood to Sheol. Then David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. And the time that David reigned over Israel was 40 years. He reigned seven years in Hebron and 33 years in Jerusalem. These verses, you'll see there, are framed by the prospect of David's death in verse 1 and by David's actual passing, his actual death there in verse 11. In between this frame, we find the final concerns of the king for his sons and his kingdom. David uses the words that Moses used as he passed the torch to Joshua in Deuteronomy 31 and Joshua chapter 1. Just as Moses called Joshua to be strong and courageous as he led the people of Israel into the promised land, so David tells Solomon that he too must be strong and show himself a man in leading the people of God. Solomon is a a new Joshua, so to speak. But what does this strength look like? What does it mean for Solomon to show himself a man? Solomon is a man. There is no changing that fact. God divinely assigns and gives each human made in his image their biological sex. Solomon is a man, and he could never be a woman. So what does David mean when he calls for Solomon to show himself a man? He means that Solomon is to be a keeper of the law. That's the force of verse 3 there, you see. He is to be the man that the first man, Adam was not the one who kept the commandment of God. And that, by the way, is who the Messiah will be, the man who keeps the law of God for us and for our salvation. These few verses set up for us the picture that the book of Kings is going to come back to over and over again. All of the kings in the book of Kings will be evaluated on whether or not they keep the law of God. And all of them will fail. Yes, some kings will be more faithful than others But they will not live the perfect faithfulness to the law that is required. Notice too that David, he gives seven descriptions of the law. Seven in the scriptures is often correlated with with wholeness or completion. This sevenfold description of the law seems to indicate that David is concerned for the law in its totality. Solomon is not just to keep one law, but the whole law. We will find that Solomon failed in this column. But praise God, Jesus did not. The second Adam. Jesus Christ is our faithful, law-keeping king. Jesus is the answer to the promise of verse 4. He is the son of David who walked before the Lord in faithfulness with all of his heart and soul. And because he did, God raised him from the grave and he is now, even now, ruling on the throne. We will never lack a man on God's throne because the man Christ Jesus ever lives to rule and reign over God's people. But what does this mean for us as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ? It means that we follow in the steps of our Savior. It means that we love God's Word and keep God's Word, not in part, but the whole. We love God's Word and we keep God's Word, not to be saved, but because we have been saved. Keeping God's Word is part of how God establishes our hearts in the certainty of our salvation. What are we to make of David's instructions concerning his enemies and friends in verses 5 to 9? Here, David is giving Solomon the, the lay of the land. David is exposing for Solomon those who threaten his kingdom and those who can help him rule his kingdom wisely. We may be tempted to think that David is a vengeful man when he's saying that Solomon needs to not let these men in their gray hair go down without the shedding of blood. We may be tempted to think that David is bitter. That he's asking for Solomon to do his dirty work and to clean up his mess. But we should be cautious about such a conclusion. Remember, Solomon has been called to be a keeper of the law like Adam was a keeper of the law. He was called to be a keeper of the law. David is simply saying, look, son, you've got some snakes in your kingdom. And you've got some servants in your kingdom. You need to cut off the heads of snakes and you need to lift up the heads of servants. This is what we see. In 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 13 to 25, in the death of Adonijah. Remember, back at the end of chapter 1, Solomon graciously promised that Adonijah, the one who anointed himself as king by the serpent's stone, could keep his life if he proved himself to be a worthy man. And as we read, 1 Kings chapter 2, verses 13 to 25, ask yourself if you think Adonijah proves himself to be a worthy man. 1 Kings chapter 2, beginning there in verse 13. Then Adonijah, the son of Haggith, came to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, and she said, Do you come peacefully? He said, Peacefully. Then he said, I have something to say to you. She said, Speak. He said, You know that the kingdom was mine, and that Israel, all Israel, fully expected me to reign. However, the kingdom has turned about to become my brothers, for it was his From the Lord. And now I have one request to make of you. Do not refuse me. She said to him, Speak. And he said, Please ask King Solomon, he will not refuse you, to give me Abishag the Shumanite as my wife. Bathsheba said, Very well, I will speak for you to the king. So Bathsheba went to King Solomon to speak to him on behalf of Adonijah, and the king rose to meet her and bowed down to her. Then he sat on his throne and, said, uh, and had a seat brought for the king's mother, and she sat on his right. Then she said, I have one small request to make of you. Do not refuse me. And the king said to her, make your request, my mother, for I will not refuse you. She said, let Abishag the Shumanite be given to Adonijah, your brother, as his wife. King Solomon answered his mother, and why do you ask Abishag the Shumanite for Adonijah? Ask for him the kingdom also, for he is my older brother. And on his side are Abiathar the priest and Joab the son of Zeruiah. Then King Solomon swore by the Lord, saying, God do so to to me, and more also, if this word does not cost Adonijah his life. Now therefore, as the king lives, who has established me and placed me on the throne of David my father, and who has made me a house and has promised, as he promised, Adonijah shall be put to death today. So King Solomon sent Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, and he struck him down and he died. This episode discloses several important points to us. First, it does disclose for us that Solomon really was promised the throne. In 1 Kings chapter 1, we learn that David promised Bathsheba that Solomon would sit on the throne. But here in verse 24 of chapter 2, we we see... That the Lord promised to make Solomon a house, and that phrase is a reference back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, God's promise to establish David as a house, and it also picks up on what we mentioned earlier from 1 Chronicles chapter 22 verses 6 to 10. In that text, the Lord spoke to David and communicated the message to Solomon. Look at verse 24 while I read, while you listen to 1 Chronicles chapter 22 verses 8 and 9. But the word of the Lord came to me saying, "You shall shed much blood. You have shed much blood." And have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name. Because you have shed so much blood before me on the earth. Behold a son shall be born to you. Who you shall be. uh, Who shall be a man of rest. I will give him rest from all his surrounding enemies. For his name shall be Solomon. And I will give peace and quiet to Israel in his days. Yahweh promised. Yahweh promised that he would make Solomon a house. That is a dynasty. A dynasty. And from verse 24, we are seeing that Solomon views himself in the line of God's promise to David. Now that he has been made a house, he needs to protect it. Which is why his dealings with Adonijah are so important. Let's be clear about Adonijah's approach. Notice that he doesn't go through the law-keeping man in order to ask for a wife. He slithers in like a serpent to the queen. He plays the telephone game. Adonijah asks Bathsheba if he may have Abishag as his wife. And and do you remember how Abishag was described in chapter 1? You remember, in verse 3 of chapter chapter 1, we were told that they sought a a beautiful young woman. And in verse 4, it was confirmed that she was beautiful. In short, we have been told in the words of Genesis 3 that she was pleasing to the eye. Here is a snake in the kingdom, in the house, and Solomon needs to act. By asking for a woman from David's harem... Adonijah reveals that he still wants Solomon's seat. In 2 Samuel chapter 16, this is the kind of thing that emerged in Absalom. When he, when Absalom, was after David's throne, he made a play for David's harem. And what this reveals is that Adonijah still has eyes for the throne. He has revealed that he is not a worthy man. And so Solomon deals swiftly and severely with him. He strikes him down and crushes his presumptuous. self-exalting serpentine hopes Solomon puts to death three more snakes three more men in this chapter Abiathar in verses 26 and 27 Joab in verses 28 to 35 and Shammai in verses 36 to 46 we're not going to read those episodes feel free to read them later this afternoon but we do need to ask what is the purpose of all of this bloodshed? what is the purpose of all of this bloodshed? the purpose of this bloodshed is to establish and secure the kingdom the deaths of these four men—Adonijah, Abiathar, Joab, and Shimei—are framed by verses 12 and 46. Take a look at 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 12. Verse 12: So Solomon sat on the throne of his father David, and his kingdom was firmly established. Then what follows is Solomon puts those four men to death, and look at how the chapter closes there in verse 46. Then the king commanded Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada. And he went out and struck him down, and he died. So the kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. Did you notice the word established appears in both of those verses? And did you remember that it appeared in Solomon's crucial confrontation with Adonijah there in verse 24? The kingdom was established in the hand of Solomon. It was established and would be established as Solomon kept God's law and kept rebels accountable. Who will reign? is the overarching question of 1 Kings chapters 1 and 2. And the answer, of course, is that God's promised king, the king that God promised, will reign. That king is to be one who keeps God's law and keeps rebels accountable, to live righteously and to reign righteously. That is the purpose of human government, to reward righteousness and to punish unrighteousness. Consider what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 13, verses 3 and 4. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do no wrong, be afraid. Sorry. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Adonijah, Abiathar. Joab and Shammai all face the judgment of the king for unrighteousness. The final promised king, Jesus, he too will come in judgment. He will, as we so often confess in the ancient creeds, he will return to judge the living and the dead. Jesus has told us this. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 25 when the Son of Man comes in glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. God's king, Jesus, lived righteously. He rules righteously. And he will judge unrighteousness. But we should not forget that just as Solomon offered mercy to Adonijah, so Jesus offers mercy to us. So receive his mercy. Receive his reign. This is what we need to ponder as we conclude. Jesus is unlike the passing king. He ever lives to rule defend, restrain, and conquer all of his and our enemies. Jesus is unlike the presumptuous king. He did not exalt himself. Instead, he humbled himself by being made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life and the wrath of God in his cursed death on the cross. Jesus showed himself worthy of ruling us by becoming obedient to the point of death. And it was for that reason that God the Father exalted him. Jesus is like and unlike Solomon. Solomon was the promised king for that moment in Israel's era and history. But his righteous rule was but a type and shadow of the reality that was to come and fold in Jesus Christ. So we rejoice that our gentle, generous, and gracious king has come. And we pray that he will come again to call us into his house and consummate His kingdom. And in the meantime, we invite Him to exercise His full rule and reign in our lives for our good and His glory. Let's pray together.